Welcome back to 10 and 20, official podcast of the Battle of Franklin Trust, where we talk about Tennessee history, usually in roughly 20 minutes, but this week is a little bit different. Yes, we are offering you folks a bonus episode. Last Thursday, June 7th at Carnton, we hosted a lecture by our CEO, Eric A. Jacobson, entitled The United States Constitution and Confederate Memory. It's a really big lead-in into our next episode that'll be coming out next week. In this lecture, uh, Eric talks about the creation of the the Confederate Cemetery at Carnton, along with that, the formation of the 14th Amendment, this idea of how are we going to remember the Civil War, what was accomplished, and kind of who gets a say in it. It's a really interesting topic, but we have a special offer for podcast listeners if you want to support this show. And to learn more as well. So we are offering a discount code, 10% off our online bookstore. The code is PODCAST18, so PODCAST, all lowercase letters, 18 at store.boft.org. And the two book recommendations that we have this week based on this topic and our next topic are called Democracy Reborn, the 14th Amendment and the Fight for Equal Rights in Post-Civil War America. I just finished reading that yesterday. It's a great book. It's not dry like a lot of history books are. It's it's very well written and you can follow it along really easily. I, I definitely recommend that book. And secondly, Eric's book, The McGavick Confederate Cemetery, which actually just last year came out with a new edition. So once again, go to store.boft.org at checkout. Use the coupon code podcast18. Thank you so much for listening. Enjoy. How's everyone doing? Well, good. Great. I want to thank everyone for coming. Sometimes I assume everyone who shows up at these things knows me, but in case you don't, my name is Eric Jacobson. I'm the CEO of the Battle of Franklin Trust, but for a long time I was just a writer, sort of a pseudo-historian, and uh, we started this lecture series kind of, I don't know how many years it's been, it's been a while, and my goal in starting the series was to have a wide-ranging variety of topics sure, that, that we could discuss. And so they're very informal. Free of the public is always good. Um, free passes, like on a night like this, is even better. So you can come back and visit on another day. But um, sometimes I've done the talks, and we've had a number of other speakers, and we've talked about all sorts of things. And so it seemed like last month we had Pat Thomas, um, who did yeoman's work in Mississippi in 1964, registering African-Americans to vote. Next month, we're going to have a really interesting talk between Van West, who's the state historian, worked at MTSU for many years, um, and Hewitt Sawyers, who's uh, a minister, uh, a Baptist minister. And the two of them are going to talk about the past um, as a white and a black man discussing the past and the future. Um, and how um, our lives are all in some ways connected to the events of the American Civil War and its aftermath. The purpose of tonight's talk is really twofold. And um, unless you all had nothing else to do, I'm assuming you're here because you thought the topics were of some interest. In barely um, a month, we will pass the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the 14th Amendment to the United States Constitution. So that's really what was the genesis of, the, of, of tonight's talk. But, you know, unless you're someone like me, it sort of 
boring civics and legal discussion can just be that sort of boring and just legalistic. But the 14th Amendment is, I would argue, one of the most controversial, but one of the most impactful amendments to the Constitution. But instead of just doing that, I thought it would be important to talk about running on a parallel course is the creation of the Confederate Cemetery here at Carnton. Because although the amendment wasn't ratified until 1868, July 9th, 1868, the verbiage was passed by Congress in 1866. In fact, it was passed almost at the exact time that the Confederate dead were being exhumed from their initial burial places on the battlefield and were being brought here to Carnton to be laid to rest once and for all. And I think that's probably where we're going to start tonight. Um, how was the cemetery here created? I think the why is relatively obvious. The, the dead from both armies were buried in a very sort of haphazard and informal way. And so what begins in 1866 here in Franklin um, and really stretches through 66 and into 67 with the burial of the federal dead eventually in Murfreesboro at the National Cemetery is not an isolated event. These vast exhumations are being conducted across the landscape. In fact, at most um, national parks, you will see an associated national cemetery, Shiloh. Gettysburg, Vicksburg, Murfreesboro. And this becomes part of the fabric of the memory of the war because people had to come to grips with what had happened when it finally ended, that there were roughly 700,000 perhaps plus dead and as was pointed out, I think, very eloquently in a book published a number of years ago entitled This uh, Republic of Suffering, this generation or two or perhaps even three of Americans had no idea how to deal with the void left by the dead. I, I would argue that we today wouldn't because we are as disconnected from mass casualties as they were. We just passed the anniversary of D-Day. I think one could argue it's the last generation that saw absolutely catastrophic, whole-scale loss. This might be the only thing really comparable to the Civil War. And so, as human beings have always done, we try and make sense of death, and we try and care for the dead. There was actually initially talk of creating a national park here for the federal dead. That was not well-received by many. In fact, it was very evident that from correspondence going on between various federal authorities and officers, in fact, one letter stated that the sentiment was such there would need to be a 24-hour guard positioned around the cemetery to protect it. So there was already a national cemetery in Murfreesboro, thus the federal dead are eventually exhumed and moved there. But what of the Confederate dead? Of course, the United States government was never going to exhume Southern dead. From our time frame, some people would often wonder why. Why not? Why would they not expend the money? Well, because the Treasury Department was run by people um, who considered many, if not most, Southerners traitors. 
and they were not about to expend taxpayer dollars to exhume the bodies of traitors. That's how they viewed it. And it really was in those stark terms. And so the Confederate dead are handled in an entirely different manner. In fact, I think you could say that one of the greatest uh, private exhumation efforts um, is conducted for the Confederate dead who are at Gettysburg, who were exhumed largely through private uh, measures and were moved from there back to Virginia. They were taken quite a distance away from they, where they were first buried. So here at Franklin, there is an effort that begins in the spring of 1866. And the, the genesis of this is really probably very private conversations. At some point, in some level, I have always thought conversations between Fountain Branch Carter and John McGavick, because ultimately it's John McGavick's property on which the dead would be buried, but it was Fountain Branch Carter's property that probably contained the most, uh, the largest number of the graves. But in the spring of 1866, there was formed a, a group which they were really structured like a, like a board where there was a president and a treasurer and a secretary and all of this. And it was a group of about nine or ten um, fellows in town who were, had of some standing. And John McGavick becomes involved with this group because, of course, it is the two acres here at Carton which are set aside as the location for the Confederate dead to be buried. Um, even as recently as 20 years ago, I don't think that the process by which the dead were moved here was really well known. In fact, one of the men who is buried in the cemetery who was involved in the exhumation had been misidentified. Um, in, in fact, he, his race had been misidentified. He had been ID'd for years as a former slave. Well, he was quite white. And his name was Marcellus Cuppet. It was his older brother, George, who actually contracted for this work. And the team was to be paid $5 per body. There were four people working on the team. But this was in a very, very difficult economic period, um, a chance to make money. And so, Three brothers, George, Marcellus, and the youngest brother, Polk, and a fourth man named Robert Sloan were contracted by this group, this burial uh, board, burial committee, with the job of exhuming the dead. Then think about Franklin in the spring of 1866. So the war has now been over for a year. But there are dead bodies stretched from the Harpeth River, just right over here along the railroad tracks in Lewisburg Pike, stretching west along modern-day Claiborne and Stewart Streets, all over where the Cotton Gin stood and around the Carter House. But the dead bodies continue out to the west beyond what is today West Main Street. Some of them buried as far out as where... Um, the cemeteries are today. Mount Hope to St. Louverture. It's a vast arc of decaying bodies. Probably in excess of 22 or 2300. And it is a deteriorating situation. It is a rotten, disgusting, awful situation. And this group decided something had to be done. And so the work began, late March, early April. These men performed an 
absolutely indescribable task, as others did in other places. As America, a very still divided, smoking and smoldering America, tried to bury its dead. The war may have been over, but there was so much still going on. And they worked six days a week here in Franklin, weather permitting. Probably the only thing that really stopped them may have been heavy rain. They worked through April. They worked through May. By late April, one of the men was dead. Marcellus Cuppet died barely a month into the work. We don't really know what killed him. Why he ended up here is much better known than what actually caused his death. But the team of four was now three. And all across the country, these various efforts with death, with remembrance, and the early seeds of Civil War memory. <clears throat> People walk through it today and probably have no knowledge of what the situation really was like and how it came to be put together. Because initially, this wasn't about any sort of honoring of the Confederacy or the cause, or it wasn't some sort of you know, weird sort of shrine it was an effort to deal with death. It was an effort to try and make something right out of something just hideously awful. Parents and old friends, soldiers, children, many of them from faraway places had wondered for months and months what had happened to someone that they loved. I wish I had found this letter when I was working on my second book, which was about the cemetery, but it was a letter written actually months before the work began by a man in Mississippi. His name was Eli Capel. He wrote John McGavick asking if he knew where his son Robert was buried. He wrote the letter in late September, 1865. I don't think it much mattered that Robert Capel was very wealthy and during the war and before the war had owned, oh, close to 100 slaves. What mattered to him at that point was he was trying to figure out where his son was buried. And John wrote him back and said that he knew where he was buried. He was buried actually in the garden of what was known as the Winder House, which was a home that had been built for, for John's mother-in-law, his wife Carrie's mother. The Winder House stood out west of here, closer to the railroad tracks. And that's where Robert was buried. He was among 424 Mississippians who would be exhumed and brought here. He was one of just many. So the work dragged on through May and then into June. And they finally finished the work third week of June or so. So right now, let's see at this point, 152 years ago, they were still working. They were bringing the dead here, one after the other. They were buried in small oak boxes because, of course, 18 months after the battle, you weren't really dealing with bodies so much as bones and what was left. By the time they finished the work, there were 1,481 Confederate soldiers buried here at Carnton. They were able to identify over 900 of these men, and how they were able to identify them wasn't because they had dog tags or any sort of identification. Old stories about soldiers, you know, putting things on the inside of their jackets mostly myth. It didn't happen a whole lot. The truth is, the day after the battle, their friends had buried them, guys who knew them. And they had marked their graves with crude headboards of whatever they could procure. They carved names and units into them, like Robert Capel, 
of the 33rd Mississippi Infantry. And so 18 months later, when the Cuppets were coming along with Robert Sloan, using these small boxes made by a local carpenter and his son, the Baugh family, they just did the best they could. They identified nearly two-thirds of them. And then, I think maybe the second uh, or equal legacy left behind, in addition to the cemetery, if you've, of course, visited Carton, you've um, been able to see the book that's inside the house that contains the names of all of the dead. It was put together by George W. Cuppet. And he gave it to the McGavocks. We have a copy right over there in that case that was made after the turn of the century, but the original book in the house, written in George Cuppet's fine, delicate handwriting. The man who dug up the dead was the man who wrote the book with their names and numbers for everybody, identified or not. The stones you see today were, were put up many years later. The original markers were made of wood, mostly cedar, painted white. The cemetery opened to the public in July 1866. And for over a century and a half, it has been a place where people visit the dead. I think long time, long ago, I realized that cemeteries are much more for the living than they are for the dead. The cemeteries are the places we go. The dead just hold, the cemeteries just hold the dead, the bodies. It's for us to remember. It's hard to fathom how many bodies were dug up and reburied. It is hard to imagine how many bodies were lost and never buried. It is hard to imagine how many people slipped away into an anonymous ravine or creek and nobody ever knew their name. Like the soldier that was found right here in Franklin in 2009. We'll never know his name. But they belong to someone somewhere. And so this was the beginning of a chapter of memory and how people remembered these men. Not so much the families or even the McGavocks, but how future generations would remember them. What we would say about them, what we would not say about them, what we would lose in our understanding of them and who they were. But these things were not isolated events running right along a parallel road with the removal of the dead to places of final rest were the, the beginnings of another process, which wasn't about memory. It was about trying to figure out what path this country was even going to take. We are separated now from our war by over 150 years. And I would argue that in many ways, we are only finally now, as a society, beginning to collectively reflect on this event in a way that actually is much closer to how those who actually fought it remembered it. 
because we did everything but make up stories about the war. We romanticized it. We made it bloodless. People said for years that slavery had nothing to do with what had even been the political breakdown which led to secession, which led to war. We did everything we could to pretend that our war was either gone with the wind or north and south. And Patrick Swayze was the perfect Confederate soldier. And who even remembers the guy who played the one wearing blue? There was a great deal going on in 1866 and 67 and 68, just like there would be in 1966 and 67 and 68, which was another period of tumult. I was, in fact, taught, and I, I heard it, I read it, that when the war was over, America was reunited. What an inaccurate way to describe the United States of America in the aftermath of the American Civil War. We were nothing even close to being reunited. We were hanging on by the slightest of threads as the dead were being reburied and Congress and a new president were beginning to try and ascertain the direction of things. As former states, which had seceded and been part of the Confederacy, were trying to figure out what should they do, what could they do, how do they work back into the Union. You now have four million people who are free, but there is no real day-to-day -day plan. You have men who had served in the Confederate armies, they are in limbo. You have people who have spent 30, 40, 50 years of their lives owning someone else and now don't own them. But they still have crops to plant or people are going to starve, both white and black, rich and poor. You have northern soldiers who have gone back home. They have won the war. And many of them were glad to be done with the South and the Confederacy, and racial strife and animus. And then a lot of people, as I've said for many years, some just went west and just quit on it all. So, let me read one piece of this 14th Amendment. Section 1. All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. We know this as the Equal Protection Clause or the Due Process Clause. It has several names. This amendment reshapes and redefines the United States of America because citizenship had never been defined. 
in any shape, form, or fashion. And actually, this amendment defines citizenship as a dual thing. You are a citizen of the country and of a state. And that can change depending on where you live. But it defines citizenship for all. For everyone. So how does this begin? We are getting along badly with our work of compromise. Badly. We will break, I apprehend, without anything being done. God will hold some men to a fearful responsibility. My heart is sick. That was written by a man named Robert Hatton, who was a Tennessean, who would later be a Confederate general. He wrote that as war was about to unfold. Robert Hatton died in Virginia in 1862. I cannot imagine what Robert Hatton would have thought of 1866 and the years that followed. So we all know who Andrew Johnson is, right? He was impeached. He is easily described, and probably rightfully so, as a racial bigot. He was born poor in Greenville, Tennessee. Blacksmith, tannery. If you've ever been to his home site, it's really a wonderful place to visit. Drank a lot, profane, stubborn, liked to talk about himself a lot, believed in the Constitution. He was the only Southern senator not to leave the United States Senate when his state left the Union. He was the only loyal one in the Senate. And for that, he would be rewarded as military governor of Tennessee and then later as vice president. I am certain that Abraham Lincoln did never anticipate that Andrew Johnson would be president. Probably no more so than John F. Kennedy believed that Lyndon Baines Johnson would be. It was a political choice, but it had wide wide-ranging ramifications. Abraham Lincoln died in April 1865. We do not know what he really would have done with Reconstruction. And to speculate is just the greatest game of what if that we could ever play. And I have had to teach myself this, and I would encourage any of you, if you're interested in this period of time, forget about thinking what Lincoln would have done, could have done, should have done, that it might have been better, because it doesn't matter. He died. And we don't know what he would have done. Because we don't know what the circumstances would have been six months or a year down the road, or who was in Congress for him to deal with. But what we have to deal with are facts. Andrew Johnson's reconstruction plan may have been very simplistic. And it was. It had four or five basic points. <clears throat> it may have been too lenient. I think there's a case to be made that he sort of was following what he thought Lincoln might do. But again, we don't know what Lincoln really would have done. Things were different by the end of 1865 and 66 than they had been in late 64 and early 65. But here's where Johnson, in my reading of things, goes terribly awry. Johnson launches his Reconstruction plan 
while Congress was in recess. Now, for some people who will say that the amendments really were passed and ratified in ways that just really aren't concurrent with how they're supposed to work, and that Johnson really is sort of the good guy in this, and the Republicans are the bad guys, I always find that take interesting because, if nothing else, Andy Johnson is acting like a monarch or a king through much of 65 and 66 because Johnson takes the approach. And I'm not going to tell you that it's right or wrong because this period of time is unlike anything we've ever gone through. And, and God help us, we'll never go through it again. We had just come out of a war. And no one really knew what we were supposed to do next. Put aside the issue of 4 million free people, whether they could vote, what their civil rights were. No one even knew what to do with Mississippi. Or the other nine states. Tennessee was an exception. No one knew what to do with the states. No one knew what to do with the white people in the states, the black people in the states. No one knew what to do with the property. And you get into Washington, DC, that mess, and put a bunch of politicians together, who knows what happens. So Johnson comes in and he says, I'm going I'm, I'm to run the reconstruction plan. I'm going to do it when Congress is in recess. Well, imagine how that went over with Congress. There were clear constitutional issues from the beginning because it's, it's totally undecided, even today, who was in charge of putting forth the policy. Let's just say, we'll call it a resolution, not even a law or a bill or an act. We'll just call it a resolution. Who gets to issue it? The president via executive order? Or does Congress do it? Well, Johnson says, I'm going to do it. And so he does it. Doesn't go up, doesn't, doesn't go over well. Because what happens is the policy is so limited and relatively lenient. Guess what the former Confederate states do? They line up to agree with it, every single one of them. Because basically the only really difficult hurdle for them to cross was they had to ratify the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. Other than that, they didn't have to do a whole lot. So boom, 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 boom. They all line up saying, we'll do that, we'll do that, we'll do that, which property rights went back to former owners. African Americans didn't get to vote. You could create your own new state constitution. You could elect your own people. Well, who's not going to sign up for that if you're in one of those former Confederate states? So they all line up. Trouble begins brewing on December 4th, 1865. Congress reconvenes. And Congress, run by Republicans, refused to seat the representatives of the former Confederate states. They would not seat them in Congress. This is where they and Johnson come to loggerheads. Because among the people who were coming to Washington to be reseated were people like Alexander Stevens, who had been the vice president of the Confederacy for four years. And now he was back in DC thinking he was going to get his Senate seat back in Georgia. And the Republicans are like, no, mm-mm. And they told Johnson, you're the president. You don't get to involve yourself in legislative affairs. Congress is for Congress. You stay in the White House. Tennessee was the only former southern state that was seated. Interestingly, they had eight congressmen at the time. And of course, all states have two senators. Among the congressmen, just as a side note, were William Stokes and Isaac Hawkins. Stokes had served in the 5th Tennessee 
U.S. Cavalry and Hawkins in the 7th U.S. Tennessee, 7th Tennessee U.S. Cavalry. Hawkins actually was born in 1818 down near Columbia, so he was a local boy. He was from around here. They were all members of what they called the Unionist um, or the Unconditional Unionist Party. The genesis of the 14th Amendment begins in this toxic environment in Washington. And what happens right away is Johnson whips out his veto pen. Everything Congress sends to him, he sends it back. And it's just back and forth tussle. But it really comes about when he vetoes the Civil Rights Act of 1866. He had already vetoed the Freedmen's Bill, the Freedmen's Bureau Bill, and it survived a, a Senate override. Then he vetoed the Civil Rights Act, and Congress overrode his veto, and thus it became law. But even among the Republicans, there was concern that this Civil Rights Bill, which gave African Americans some of their first basic civil rights, would be judged unconstitutional. So they thought, to make it constitutional, we have to amend the Constitution. And in theory, that's, that's actually the, the, the approach that I think they should have taken. Over 70 proposals for this amendment were put forth. Congressional deliberations drag on. Eventually, they, the House passes Resolution 127. This is, this is a civics lesson. You get to re remind yourself how it actually works. So the House passes a resolution. The Senate makes some changes to various sections of the amendment. And then the Senate passes a modified resolution on June 8th, 1866, almost 152 years ago to the day. The Confederate dead are still being brought to Carnton on June 8th, 1866, right out here as Congress is passing the words to this new amendment. Five days later, the House agrees to the Senate amendments by a vote of 138 to 36. One of the, I think, really interesting things about amending the Constitution is both chambers of the House need to pass the verbiage, the language, by a two-thirds majority. There's no simple majority stuff with amendments. It's two-thirds majority, and then three-quarters of the states must ratify the amendment. What does Andrew Johnson do? He opposes the amendment. Of course he does. Because he doesn't believe the Constitution can be altered without Southern representation. But the Republicans are saying, these representatives do not represent the South in the way that it should be represented. But as it turns out, they are eventually reseated. And every former Confederate state, with the exception of the volunteer state, refuses to ratify the proposed amendment. And this gets down into the issue of law and practicality, which has always been a sort of fine needle to thread for this country politically. What do you do? You need three quarters of the states and you know darn well those states are never going to ratify this amendment because every member was white and a Democrat, except Tennessee. So what does Congress do? Congress passes four statutes known as the Reconstruction Act, and this is where it gets really, really crazy. The first, which was passed in March of 1867, Johnson vetoed that too. <laughs> stated that Virginia, 
North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, Louisiana, Florida, Texas, and Arkansas, the 10 of 11 Confederate states, would not be readmitted into the Union, although they had a delegation seated in Congress, but they wouldn't be readmitted to the Union and have full rights, again, until they met a series of conditions. Chief among them was they needed to ratify the 14th Amendment. <laughs> so they said, you are not going to be in practical relation with the United States again until you ratify this amendment. Now that is strong-arming. North Carolina, Louisiana, South Carolina, Georgia, Virginia, and Texas finally ratified the amendment by 68, but only after they rejected it in 66. Mississippi has never ratified the 14th Amendment. Mississippi didn't even ratify the 13th Amendment until about 1995, so that's a different speed. It is ironic that the 28th state to ratify the 14th Amendment, it's really ironic. The, the state that threw it over the top was South Carolina. John C. Calhoun probably was rolling in his grave that day. But back to Andrew Johnson. I think that Andrew Johnson makes a very compelling argument against the Reconstruction Acts. And here's why. Has anyone been to his home site? See, this is how popular Johnson is. Three of us. Go see it. You know, Johnson would be impeached for violating what was known as the Tenure of Office Act. Does anyone know what it was? They told, the Congress told the President, the Congress, the legislative body told the executive individual, you couldn't fire a member of your own cabinet. So this isn't like Trump firing the FBI director. Congress says the President can't fire his Secretary of State. Can't do it. That's what they impeached him over. Because he went ahead and fired Edwin Stanton. And they impeached him. In 1929, the United States Supreme Court ruled that Andrew Johnson was right. Congress was wrong. It's interesting how it works. A little too late for Johnson. But Congress was acting in, in a completely unconstitutional way. And I do think that Andrew Johnson makes a very compelling case that the legislative body had no business whatsoever telling a state that it had to fulfill a requirement to ratify an amendment to the US Constitution which can only be adjudicated by the judicial wing of our government. Do you follow me? Johnson was saying, you don't have the right to require this state to do something regarding an amendment that ultimately the Supreme Court has jurisdiction over. You can't do that. He actually makes an, the most compelling argument was, if you think these states cannot be seated and they have to go through these requirements, then these same states that ratified the 13th Amendment have to be viewed in the same lens. And Johnson actually said, if you're going to treat them like this, then the 13th Amendment's null and void. 
it was never ratified. Let's not forget that in 1857, the US Supreme Court had ruled that African Americans weren't even citizens. And the 14th Amendment redefines that, overturns the Dred Scott decision. Johnson was operating in a realm where the Constitution was a literal document, and there was no variance from it. I think there was no good solution to this. And ultimately, Johnson would not win out. Congress simply had the numbers to push forward these acts. And the southern states would be required to ratify, to re-enter the Union. But let's just talk briefly about the amendment itself. What does it do? Section 1, as I said, is the Equal Protection Clause. It's been used repeatedly through the years. And I, I'd list off three that we should all know. The Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954 is probably one of the most well-known, which breaks down separate but equal. It was also used in the uh, Bush versus Gore decision in 2000 which is an interesting way that it was interpreted by the court through due process. But the most recent, probably well-known, is gay marriage. The 14th Amendment was utilized in that decision. A few things that the 14th Amendment spawned. In 1884, there was a case, Elk versus Wilkins. Not all Native Americans were citizens under the 14th Amendment, if local tribal governments defined them as citizens. So, he sued, he ended up losing the case, but ultimately they had to pass the Citizenship Act for Native Americans in 1924, which then defined citizenship for them. Here's a really interesting one. In 1898, there was a case, the United States versus Wong Kim Ark. If you remember anything related to the 14th Amendment that's really intriguing, it's this one. Ark was born in this country. His parents were Chinese. They were immigrants, aliens. He was born here. He left when he was in his mid-20s on a trip to China. When he came back, they didn't let him back in the country because there had been some very tough immigration statutes put into place against China. So Ark wasn't allowed back in. He sued the United States government saying, you have to let me back in. I'm a citizen. I was born there. The Supreme Court ruled in his favor. And they judged at that point that if you are born to a resident alien or immigrant, alien is the word they used, you are a citizen. What the Supreme Court has never ruled on is whether you're a citizen if your parents are illegal aliens. Because Ark's parents had to get on a boat to come from China and had to be duly processed. I do find it fascinating that in all of the recent immigration struggles that there has not been a case that's worked its way up to the court for that to be decided. It's very much up in the air. Plessy versus Ferguson in, 19, or in 1896, one of the most well-known cases that established a separate but equal. The argument was that Louisiana laws violated the 14th Amendment. The court ruled seven to one that as long as separate accommodations were equal, the amendment requirement was satisfied. But of course, I think we all know that separate did not mean equal. Judge Harlan of Kentucky uh, who had also dissented in an 1883 decision which overturned the 1875 Civil Rights Act was, a vehement argue, was a vehemently argued that the Constitution was colorblind and that that decision actually sanctioned law based on color. 
Seven to one. Harlan was the only dissenting vote. And that was 30-some years after the Civil War had ended. Here's another fascinating one. The apportionment clause, which is section two. We all have heard of the three-fifths clause in the Constitution, where slaves were counted as three-fifths. Because initially, Southern politicians wanted their slaves counted as five-fifths, or one. It was a Northern senator, in an effort to broker some deal, offered a three-fifths compromise. So let's not forget, it really wasn't the northern politician's idea to make black people three-fifths. They just thought it was ridiculous that you should count a slave as a single person for the purpose of representation, because the representation would then be not black, but white. But what the civil rights, or what the uh, um, 14th Amendment does, is creates a five-fifths. Black people were now counted as one. And that helps increase representation in the former Confederate states. But if black people can't vote, that just means more white people in the former Confederate states. Furthermore, by later stripping African Americans, Pat was, saw it firsthand in the, in the 1960s, by stripping African Americans' right to vote in the 1890s, 1900, 1905, 1910, they actually used the amendment against African Americans because they were counting them as numbers to decide how many representatives they got in the House, but then didn't let them vote, which just sent more white people to Washington, who, of course, continued the practices of Jim Crow. The Enforcement Clause, which is Section 5, was used by the Supreme Court in 1883 to overturn the Civil Rights Act of 1875, unconstitutional. They ruled that Congress had no authority to legislate against private discrimination due to the fact that Section 1 of the 14th Amendment only applied to discrimination on a state level, which meant that as long as Alabama didn't pass a law that said African Americans cannot uh, sit in the same place at the movie theater, that would have been a violation. But if the owner of the movie theater said black people can't sit in the same part of theater, that was acceptable. The law is a funny thing. Georgia, in 1957, passed a memorial resolution which was sent to the United States Congress declaring the 14th and the 15th Amendment, which was guaranteeing the right to vote based on no restriction on color or race. Georgia sent a resolution to the United States Congress declaring both amendments null and void. Now that is just unbelievable, isn't it? That you could actually say, we're just not going to abide by the right of people to be citizens or to vote. In 1957, little wonder we had the struggles we did 50 and 60 years ago, and still, in some ways, are moving beyond that. So you have Congress hard at work, trying to determine what the future is to be. You have private citizens like the ones who lived here, and others trying to grapple with the loss of people 
who left a huge void in their communities. We should never forget that much of this country was on fire after the Civil War. The war ended, but the fighting didn't. In Memphis, from May 1st to May 3rd of 1866, as all of the aforementioned things I've talked about were going on, there was a wide-scale riot. The end result is that 46 African Americans would be killed and two whites. In New Orleans on July 30th, 1866, there would be another riot sparked by the same racial strife and disagreements over who had the power. The end result of the New Orleans riot, 44 blacks were killed, and as well, three white Republicans who had aligned themselves with the African Americans. This went on for years, and years and years. As I was putting together some of these things, I was struck by a sentence, a single sentence, and I'll, and I'll end with this, and I can take some questions if you'd like, written by a Supreme Court justice not 15 years ago. We often hear a lot said to us by whether it's the printed press, the television press, we read it on social media. God knows how unreliable so much of that can be about the Constitution. Is it a living document? Is it a literal document? Well, I don't even understand the argument. I mean, the Constitution's been amended 27 times, so it's not the same thing that it was in 1789 or 1795 or 1862. I mean, it does change. And the changes usually are simply an expansion of liberty to prevent something else bad from happening to another group. This is the sentence. When new insight reveals discord between the Constitution's central protections and a received legal stricture, a claim to liberty must be addressed. And I think that is so well said. When new insight reveals discord between the Constitution's central protections, meaning the ones that are already there, and a received legal stricture, a claim to liberty must be addressed. And you have seen this repeatedly. I would say even in the movement toward, as we gave African-American men the right to vote, white women still couldn't vote. It would be another 50 years before that happened. Because new insight revealed that it was time. Probably long overdue, wouldn't you agree? I'm married and have two daughters, so I, you know, it's, you sort of get swayed to realize that sometimes we aren't the only one who can make a good decision. When new insight reveals discord, remember those words. And thus the Constitution in the history of our country now, the Constitution's been around for 200 and almost 30 years. It's only been changed 27 times. And actually, you can just drop two of those because prohibition and then the repeal, they sort of neutralize each other. So it's really like 25 changes, 10 of which were done right away. So it's really only been amended 15 times. 
and the 14th Amendment, while very controversial, it's not unconstitutional. And you know why it's not unconstitutional? Because it's in the Constitution. Okay, it's in there. So you can argue, we can have a nice debate about how it got in there, but it's in the Constitution. That right there is the ultimate supremacy clause. It's no longer unconstitutional. This is just a small piece of this period of time from the war ending and the Union is preserved and slavery is ended to us as a group of people who have changed a lot, but we, we, we still have, we're still a lot like those people 150 years ago. And what I mean by that is human beings are human beings. They just live in different times. But it was a, it was a tumultuous and crazy period, and no one really knew what the future was. And just a few years after this, the 15th Amendment would be passed. By that time, Grant was president. And then when Grant left in 1876, Reconstruction ended with the incoming administration of Rutherford B. Hayes. And then some of this progress, and it was difficult progress during those 10 years, began to roll back. It's why you see an overturning of a Civil Rights Act. It's why you see Plessy versus Ferguson. It's why you see separate but equal. And to spring forward to today, since yesterday was D-Day, the anniversary of D-Day, hard to believe it's been 74 years. They're almost all gone now. There aren't many left. There were a lot of African-American men who came back from the South Pacific and Europe and said, I am not going to be treated like a second-class citizen anymore. I'm not going to do it. And those sparks started right after another war, another terrible great war that spawned a, a, new, a new birth of freedom and a lot of changes. And luckily, they had the 14th Amendment to lean on so that people could have due process. Thank you all very much.